Hey, hey, it's the Productize Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Brian Castle. Got a good one for you today. I'm talking to Nathan Barry, founder of ConvertKit, the email marketing software. So if you don't know Nathan, I'm sure there's not many of you out there, but yeah, he's, he's run a pretty impressive self-funded business for a long time now, um, starting from various apps and info products and training and books into more recently, the last few years, building up ConvertKit, the email marketing SaaS application, which has just been on a tear these last couple of years, just really impressive growth. So it's always uh, great to catch up with Nathan because, you know, like I said, many of you probably already know him and his story, especially from the early years. So that enabled me to just dive right into the questions that I really wanted to ask Nathan all about. Um, I think we covered a lot of really good stuff here that maybe you haven't heard him talk about elsewhere. I dug into some of the tactical outbound sales strategy that he used early on in ConvertKit and even how that's scaled out to today, how he's been able to grow the team and his thoughts on staying profitable and self-funding and when to invest cash into your business and uh, just a lot of of good stuff in here, a lot of insightful, inspiring stuff. It's always uh, great to catch up with Nathan here. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Nathan Barry from ConvertKit. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with uh, with Nathan Barry. I'm sure most people in this audience know Nathan and his story, but of course, he's the founder of ConvertKit, the email marketing tool, uh, among you know many other things in his career path. But yeah, today we're going to kind of talk about the story of ConvertKit these past few years. Nathan, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. Cool. So you know, like I said, I, I think a lot of people you know have heard many parts of your story. You've been super transparent about stuff on your own blog over on NathanBarry.com and you've been on, you know, uh, many different podcasts. So, you know, I definitely encourage folks, if you're not familiar with Nathan's story, definitely go back and check those out. But I definitely want to start off with your current company, ConvertKit, and really the trajectory that that's been on these past few years. You know what, I'd like to really kind of focus on a few areas in this interview, just maybe things that I haven't heard you talk in super detail about. Uh, so just, let's just kind of start off with the early sales process. I mean, I know that you've had, you've been bootstrapping this from day one. Um, what were kind of some of those like early wins when you started to really commit to ConvertKit and really get the early sales and customer base growing? Yeah. So at about 18 months in, we were, um, I want to say doing 1300 a month in revenue. Uh, and that's when I decided to double down on it. And that's when all the graphs from then on started to look pretty, they did not look pretty but, so early on, it was a lot of direct sales. Once things started to work, I should say, it was a lot of direct sales. And so that was making lists of people. So first getting a really specific niche, you know, email marketing for professional bloggers. But then we narrow it further and say, email marketing for professional paleo recipe bloggers who are women. And then like that, you can actually list out all, you know, there might be 50 of them. And then just cold outreach. Um, so many people do cold outreach terribly. Actually, Josh Pickford from Bear Metrics has this running thread on Twitter that he keeps adding to. I just saw that. All the cold, he's had it going for like a month or two now. It's quite long. All the terrible cold emails that he gets and they're really bad. So yeah, don't be like that. Yep. I saw that and it's great. And you know, a friend of mine just, uh, he actually launched this thing where when he gets a cold email from someone, he has like a canned reply that he says like, hey, you know, my time is really valuable. I would love to give you that time go to this page, you can pay $250 and you'll get a half an hour of my time and I'll hear out your pitch. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, with those cold pitches, if you write them well and you write them you know, as a personal email and don't do automated follow-ups, don't do any of this stuff. If you want to automatically remind yourself to follow up, great. 
but don't send an automated email. Um, what you can do with that is, uh, you know, reach out to people, get on calls, start building up relationships. So I just always ask, Hey, I see you're using MailChimp. Is anything frustrating with MailChimp? The reason I ask is everyone can convert, blah, blah, blah. Three sentences to the whole email. So, I'm, all right. I'm, I kind of want to just dig into that real quick. I mean, first of all, the big, just strategic move, I think obviously was to kind of, I hate that word pivot, but you start to focus on the blogger market. Um, and I guess that in itself makes it easier to start doing things like cold outreach because you have an actual specific target market, a target customer that you can focus on with that sort of strategy, right? Yeah, for sure. So I don't think you can do cold outreach if you don't have a really specific market. Or I think if you try, you're wasting your time because otherwise you're never building up that momentum. Because the reason to do the cold outreach is to get that momentum in a specific area. So it feels like everyone is using your product. So I was talking to this fitness blogger because another, uh, no, it was a, a men's fashion blogger. Another niche that we went after was men's fashion. And, uh, you know, at one point he said, you know, I feel like everyone on the entire internet is switching to ConvertKit. And we had six, 7,000 a month in revenue at the time. So clearly that was not the case. But what had happened is we'd gone after that niche and I talked to everyone in that. And so he was considering switching and like two of his friends had switched and five more were thinking about switching. And so when they would all talk to each other, because they all knew each other, it created that perception. It created that echo chamber. And so that's what direct sales is really good for is getting that momentum going. But if you have a spray and pray approach to it, then you'll never get that echo chamber because it'll just be half a dozen or, a, you know, three dozen people across the same number of industries and they won't ever know about each other or care. Right, right. And so I think where cold outreach, cold email outreach really starts to, where you can potentially differentiate yourself from all the noise. I mean, we all get the emails every single day now. Is like in the effort that you put into building the list. Like, were you just personally like just digging through sites and sites of blogs and, and bloggers and figuring out who they were and how you can personalize the emails? Like, how did you go about finding the people to send manual cold outreach to? Yeah, so I did it three ways. Um, one was building a list based on industry. So I would try to um, find as many, you know, men's fashion bloggers, fitness bloggers, paleo recipe bloggers, whatever in that space. And one, one of my favorite ways to do this is a few Google searches. So, right, we find our first 10 blogs in that way. And then from there, I'll go through to their Twitter profiles and learn more. If you follow them, then Twitter will be like, oh, you should also follow this person. And it will rotate through a few of those, you know, and it'll be like, here's two super relevant people and Barack Obama that you should follow. And you're like, okay, we'll send the cold email to Brock later. Right. But, um, <laughs> you know, it'll give you like, here's this other blog, or this other blogger that's similar size, similar industry. And so you can kind of go from there and you're just adding it all to a spreadsheet. And then I manually look everybody up, see what they're using, fill in those details and then send those emails. And I would just track it all in Trello or in a spreadsheet. Um, so that's the first way. And I guess there's also the, the other benefit is like you follow someone, it kind of shows up on their timeline, like, hey, Nathan Barry followed you. And then yep. a few days later, you get an email from them. It's like some recognition there. And if someone's in the, you know, certainly under 10,000 followers on Twitter, there's a decent chance of that happening. And if you had done that and comment, like bigger names I was going after and trying to get a, a call with before I reached out, I might follow them on Twitter. And then a couple of days later, reply to a post engage with some of their stuff and then maybe comment on their blog and then send an email. And this was all you in, in that time? Like you were basically doing this work every day? Yeah, for sure. How are you organizing it? Like the follow-up and the lists and like what was kind of your routine looking like? 
I just use Trello. And so I would just have columns going across for people to contact, uh, contacted, interested, and not interested. And then like kept kind of going across the board and then, you know, actually in a conversation. So anyone who replied got put in interested, you know, and then I guess there was a decline column as well. It was super sophisticated. <laughs> I just didn't want to pay for, I didn't want to pay for a full CRM and I didn't want all the weight of like filling out this is how many subscribers this person has. And this is the provider they're using right now and all this stuff. Um, I just wanted to be able to drop a name in there. I mean, I, I think it's better to, to just go bare bones and focus on the actions that actually matter. I mean, are you going to send the email or not? And how are you going to personalize it? And and so the content of the email, you mentioned that you you basically started off by asking a question about them using MailChimp. Um, can you tell me more about that? Like how you crafted the email and some tips? Yeah, so it was just, the email was two lines. Is there anything frustrating you with MailChimp? And then the second line was, the reason I ask is I run ConvertKit. It's used by A, B, and C. And I try to name drop the most relevant people. So not the biggest names, but the most relevant. And at the time, you know, early on, we didn't have much of anything, but over time I'd acquire more and more, you know, better names to use. And so I'd have three names that I include in there and then say, really appreciate you taking the time to answer Nathan. And that's it. Because when, when you see these emails that are like 20 sentences long, then I'm pretty sure you didn't just write that to me. I'm pretty sure you copied and pasted that, you know, or you used an automated tool to do all that. And it's just, it's not the same. Yeah. Um, and I didn't use any email tracking software or anything like that. I just sent it from Gmail and that limited the volume that I could send. And I think it, I think that's good because you're going for quality over quantity. And then what is, what was kind of your follow-up after that? So you send an email, you don't hear from them for a week. Like what happens next? Yeah. So I probably waited longer than I needed to. Um, I would just, uh, it's actually been a long time since I've sent these emails. So I'm trying to think what the follow-up was, but uh, it was just kind of asking the same question in, in a different way, maybe two weeks later, if I hadn't gotten a response. And I had a third follow-up that was a link to a YouTube video of a quick little demo of ConvertKit, specifically talking about like from that MailChimp angle. And then if I didn't hear anything after that, I'd just stop emailing it's interesting because, you know, I, I see like two kind of pitfalls, I guess, or just as on the receiving end of a lot of these cold emails, like you either see them just like trying to sell you right off the bat. First email, I've never heard of you. Hey, check out my tool, buy it now. Like there's that. And then there's the other thing where it's just so, um, I don't know, they're just trying to like get you into some sort of like lead magnet that's like not super relevant to the actual product or, you know, kind of funnel me down this path. And it's like, all right, I kind of see what you're doing. I'm, whatever, I'm probably just going to ignore it. You know, what I like about what you're doing is like, first of all, you're starting off with a question that's legitimately like a good conversation starter about an email, you know, why you use your email tool. And then you're coming right out and saying like, like I'm emailing you about ConvertKit and either you're kind of interested in it or you're not. I'm not going to waste too much time for either of us. Right, and people would come back and say, these are my frustrations MailChimp, by the way, no interest in switching. And I just reply and say, great, if that ever changes, you know, I'm here, I'd love to talk. But by asking the frustrations, someone had an easy out. They're like, nope, happy with it. And they didn't have to be the, you know, they'd have to feel bad about not responding to an email or something. But they also didn't really have to engage. And I wasn't asking for a call. But then if they would engage and they say, well, you know, this is, these are my frustrations, et cetera, then I, it could it'd be basically be like, well, funny enough, those were my frustrations. And that's why I started ConvertKit because I was using MailChimp. Right. And it's powerful, like coming from the founder, the creator of it. Right. You know, and they don't have to know that 
there's only two of us working on the product. But, and then, so if they responded to that, then I would try to, I'd answer that, like respond to their frustrations and try to get them on a call. And that worked really well. Very cool. Um, two things I was going to add really quick. Uh, the other ways that I built lists, there's a tool called built with, uh, where you can, you know, Hey, you can do things like give me every website out there that uses Aweber sorted by Alexa rank. And that actually resulted in, I got less like lower quality results from that. I think something about following people on Twitter and discovering them organically meant that I found higher quality leads but we definitely got results from it. And then the last way is every person I talked to, you know, on a call, I would say, great, who else should I talk to? And that, I mean, that was the highest leverage as far as someone was like, oh, you should talk to my friend, Joe. He's super pissed at Infusionsoft. And, and then coming from a personal referral, I mean, they'll, they'll open that email. Right. Yeah. And so then I ask like, okay, cool. I'll reach out to them. Would you be up for doing an intro? And at least, you know, three quarters of the time, they're totally up for it. That's great. You know, one of the things that I've always found just really interesting about you and following your story throughout these years before, even before ConvertKit is like your ability to, to change, to change your, your role, to change what you're focused on every day. I mean, you know, you don't come from a background in sales, right? Like you're, you're, you're a designer, you, you build things um, just like so many of us. And, and I, and I see so many people building software products, doing services, doing all these different things. And they're just kind of hoping that like SaaS is like supposed to be the holy grail. Like people magically come to your website and sign up and pay you money. But, you know, here you are, you know, building ConvertKit, literally one email, one customer at a time. Um, like, can you talk a bit about that? Like, what did it take to get you to start doing cold sales email outreach every single day? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it took a lot. Um, so to set the stage, the very first conference that I went to in like a professional setting was a web design conference called A List Apart in Seattle. And um, I was super excited to go there. I was going to meet all these other great, you know, learn from all the, the industry greats and meet other designers and all this stuff. And I, I'm trying to think how old I was then, 20, I was probably 20 at the time. And the entire two-day conference, I met three people. Because I was just like too shy and nervous to go up and talk to anybody. So the people I met was like a lady that I sat next to, you know, during the event who started talking to me. And then the two other people I met over lunch, each of those other two days, like just happened to sit next to. And so like my, I'm not like the super outgoing sales guy who's going to jump in there and be like, yeah, like, you know, these people this is why my product is awesome. Like, oh yeah, I know everybody. Like, that's not me at all. I've grown into some of that. And quite frankly, the more you start blogging and the more name recognition you get, then events, other people will do the work for you. They'll come up and be like, oh, Nathan, right? Yeah, I love, you know. And then I'm like, yes, as an introvert, I don't have to do like any work here. I didn't have to come up and start the conversation. And so for me, like coming from that background, I love the idea of selling through content, you know, and selling through these mass market plays. But when that didn't work, I had to get over my fears and uh, shyness because I wanted to make money and I wanted this business to be a success. And I think that's the thing that people get hung up on is there will come a time, hopefully that your desire to make this product a success will outweigh your fears of getting out of your comfort zone. And hopefully that happens sooner rather than later, but just know that in order to grow a company that has to happen. Yeah. Yep. So just to kind of, you know, wrap up the stuff about that sales process. Like, so since then, I guess that was a couple of years ago now that you were sending those everyday cold emails. 
have you guys like, do you or anyone on your team like still do that sort of thing? Like, have you scaled it up? Have you built a system around it? Or was that kind of like an early kind of uh, traction play kind of thing? Yeah. So we've scaled it up. Um, one thing that we found, you know, everyone talks about inbound sales. It's so wonderful, right? You want to capture all these leads and then you can just do demo calls and close that. And it works great. And we have a whole funnel on our site related to demos. Someone on our team, her name's Simona. She's amazing. You know, gives a lot of those demos, follows up, closes those accounts, right? Because for us, we have, you know, a 25,000 subscriber account. It's paying us 200 bucks a month. Like it's absolutely worth spending some time on that relationship to close it. 200 bucks a month is fantastic. The other thing that we do there is we have our concierge migration program where we'll do the whole setup and everything for you for free. And so if we can funnel people into that, the churn is absurdly low. People just leave being fans because it's like, wait, seriously, you logged into my MailChimp account, my WordPress account, and like switched everything for me? Okay. You know, and I just have to pay the monthly fee. Like there's no $2,000 setup fee. So people love that. And we have that inbound process. But what we found is through inbound, we weren't getting the flagship accounts that we wanted. So if you take like Pat Flynn and Chris Gillibo and Tim Ferriss and Gretchen Rubin, and you know, these amazing creators that we want to have using ConvertKit, they're not going to come to ConvertKit and be like, oh, well, I clicked on your Facebook ad and then I filled out your demo request. We've had some great people come through there, but like the people that we're ridiculously proud of that used us all come from building those relationships in that outbound. So we don't do outbound on the small scale anymore of like, you know, before when we had 1500 a month in MRR, you know, you're trying to pick up anybody, but now it's a lot of outbound and it's to get customers in the $500 a month and above price point, particularly ones that have the name recognition. So the way that we do that a lot now is get on planes. And so we'll go to a specific city. I went to LA a couple of weeks ago, you know, just lined up a whole bunch of meetings Everybody wants to get on a call, but if you're like, hey, I'd love to meet, how would I come down to LA in two weeks? Uh, then everyone's like, oh, oh, wow, he does actually really want to meet. So I've done that in New York, Nashville, San Diego, all of those places. And, and these are, so first of all, you're still kind of targeting bloggers, like high profile, well-known, large audience bloggers for those sorts of things. Like to be able to do that, right? Like to be able to send an email or make a call and get on a plane. I mean, are you getting like an introduction from someone or is it name recognition for yourself or for ConvertKit at that point? Like, how are you making that happen? Yeah. So first to make the list, like I have my top 100 list of people, the top 100 people that I want to be using ConvertKit. I think the first mistake that a lot of people make is they're like, oh, I'd love more influential people to use our product. And you're like, yeah, who? If you don't actually list them out, then you're not ever going to get there. So first, you know, open a Trello board or a Google sheet, list them all out. And then you can start adding notes. Okay. What city do they live in? What competitor do they use now? And then maybe who do I know that knows them? So, you know, uh, like Taylor Swift is on my list for ConvertKit. Top 100 person. Turns out she actually uses MailChimp. So you're like, hmm, maybe there's potential there. But then if I list that out, list cities that she might be in, then I can realize, oh, she's actually not the one the person to talk to. It's her manager or, you know, people on her team. So let's identify who that is. And then you start to work backwards and say, okay, who do we know that has done work with that record label before, you know, all this stuff. And then before you know it, you can work backwards and you at least know who to ask to get an intro. Or if someone's a little closer than that, maybe a well-known author who has 50,000 subscribers um, or something like that, then you might realize, oh, a friend of a friend knows that this person or they're speaking at this conference. And so before the conference, I'm going to shoot them an email and say, hey, really looking forward to your talk. 
I'll try to come up and find you 10 minutes before the talk to ask a couple questions or whatever. Because one thing, if you're trying to meet people, don't try to meet them after their talk. Shoot them an email and say, hey, can I meet you before your talk, before you're mobbed by everyone? And uh, then they'll be like, yeah, that's great. You know, just meet me here and I'll go on stage 30 minutes later and that'll be great. So I always do that. Yeah. And chances are people speaking, like they're kind of looking for things to do before they get on stage. Right. Especially if they're speaking, if you somehow know they're attending all the days of the event and they're speaking on the later days. Because only the people who actually know them and recognize them will talk to them on the first day. But then after their talk, then everyone's like, oh yeah, you know, they have a conversation starter after that. They're like, loved your talk, wanted to ask about this. And so find all the people speaking on the second day, email them, tweet them, reach out to them on the first day. And the same way, like if I'm at the event, I'll tweet at someone. Now, actually, my favorite story from this is uh, I was at the Saster annual event two years ago. And I really wanted to meet Mike McDermott from FreshBooks. And uh, the reason I wanted to meet him was because they'd bootstrapped for such a long time or hadn't gotten by with tiny amounts of funding. And then years down the road, they decided to raise a huge round. But I, I wanted his perspective, right? Scaling a company without a lot of that funding. And so I was sitting there and I was like, at first I was hoping that I would run into him or something, but there's like 4,000 people at the event. And I pulled up his Twitter profile and I was looking at it, trying to decide. And then I'm like, okay. And so I just messaged him and say, hey, Mike, we'd love to meet to talk about uh, you know growing companies with minimal capital. And he leans forward and waves at me because he's sitting two seats away. And he, when he came up and sat down, he had seen me pull up his Twitter profile. <laughs> and, and he's just like, hey, the session isn't very good. You want to you wanna just go talk now? <laughs> nice. And I was like, yes, that would be great. Yeah, definitely better than whatever session that was. <laughs> right. But. And so, you know, that kind of thing of just sending out a tweet and saying, hey, I would love to meet you or emailing a couple days in advance. And they'll usually say like, yep, super busy, but try to catch me at this time or whatever. But then I've definitely had it where when you come and meet them, they're like, oh yeah, you're the guy who wrote the, you know, there's an in there. So I travel a decent amount. I try to do one trip a month. Yeah. I mean, I have noticed just like you personally, you do go to a ton of conferences and it's almost like that's like a, just like a personal, I'm sure it's fun, but it's like a personal tactic that you've used again and again. Oh yeah. Cause you've got to build the network and you have to know a lot of people. Some of them, like I'm going to a traffic conversion conference in a couple of weeks down in San Diego. I'm not even going to buy a ticket, but everyone's in town. And so I you know, make a list of who's there, who I want to meet. And you really put in a bunch of work up front. Everyone's like trying to show up to a conference and just, I hope I meet great people. It's like, no, if you don't have a list of the five people that you really want to meet, then you're just doing it wrong. Right. There's no point to getting on a plane, getting a hotel and all that, unless you're going to have those conversations. The other thing I would say in the early days, like these flights and hotels and whatnot get super expensive. So if you don't know about travel hacking and uh, using credit cards to get points, definitely do that because it's, it's a great way to bootstrap otherwise expensive travel. And so, you know, everyone's always complains like, oh, I couldn't do that. That's too expensive or whatever. So there's ways around pretty much every objection. And I've, I've seen you talk about that. I've, I've seen others talk about that. And every time I, I, I mean, I kind of use points, but I'm not nearly in an optimal way for that kind of stuff. And like every time I try to even think about it, I'm like, that's too much work. Somebody needs, I, I think I've seen like a productized service around that. Like they'll help you, you know? I think there is somewhere. You know, the hack now is to just have a business that spends a quarter million dollars a month on a credit card. And then you're like, oh, now I have unlimited points for yep. life. But <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have that, you know, sign up for a travel credit card and then you're able to get two or three free flights out of it. So I, I did actually want to get into that 
kind of what you were talking with Mike McDermott about profitability in general. I know that's something that you've done a lot of work on over the last few years and self-funding and growing a SaaS. I, again, I think one of those big misconceptions about a SaaS software business is that, you know, oh, it's subscription-based, it's recurring revenue. It's, it, you know, the profit just keeps stacking on month after month. But I mean, obviously that's not necessarily the case. Like, can you talk a bit about that of like, just like profitability in general, like early on and as it went on? Yeah. So when we when I doubled down on ConvertKit, we're doing that 1300 a month in revenue two years in, um, I put 50 grand in. And so that was all of my savings. And so at that point, I hired a lead engineer and then I hired a customer support person. And so without me taking any salary, we were spending about 13000 a month and making 1300 And then those two numbers gradually got closer and closer together. We stayed basically at roughly the same. Actually, it was probably 10000 a month that we were spending right in the beginning and then gradually climbed to 13000 And over time, that got closer and closer. And like the biggest cost centers early on are basically people. Yeah. It's always the... I mean, even at this point, our biggest line item by far is by an order of magnitude is people, Yeah, you know, otherwise like our infrastructure costs are 40 grand a month or something at ConvertKit and our salaries are 350,000 a month or, you know, something like that. Yeah. I'm also curious about like the growth. So like you're obviously you're in like a hyper competitive market. So you have to keep competing on features and getting users and all that. I mean, is that what kind of forces you to, to, grow the engineering team and grow the customer success team and all that kind of stuff? Like, is that where the costs start to really add up as you start to really uh, grow pretty fast? Yeah. And we just found that there was always, something was always on fire or about to catch on fire. It's probably how it really felt. And so we just needed as much help as we could, you know, either support queue was buried or, you know, we needed to scale the infrastructure or, Hey, you know, our biggest customer was 50,000 subscribers. Now we have a 200,000 subscriber account and like, you know, the reports pages weren't coded efficiently enough or that's not cached or whatever. So yeah, we would keep hiring basically absolutely as quickly as as it came in. And I think that was, I wouldn't change anything about the path that we took. So basically we got to profitability right around the 13 to 14,000 a month range. And then after that, from there up until about 110,000 a month, which crazily enough was only six months later, um, we spent almost every dollar as it came in. Like we have a story with Matt, who's uh, he's the third longest person who's been at ConvertKit. And uh, when he came on, he was like, hey, well, we hired him part-time for customer support. And then the next week we were like, hey, could you work 25 hours instead of 20? And he's like, "Uh, okay. You know, and then a week later we were like, how about 30? And then like another week or two after that, we're like, hey, can you work 40 hours a week? And he's like, sure, that's great. Glad to be at full time. But and later he asked, like, I never understood why, like, what was up with that? Why not make the jump from 20 to 40? And to say, like, because that was our MRR. Like, right. <laughs> that was the exact amount of money that we had coming in. And so once I did the math, I was like, oh, I can buy five more hours of his time this week because we just closed another $300 of MRR or whatever. You know, I'm also curious because I know that like, I face this stuff. I know every self funded founder who's growing stuff faces this question of like, when do you feel confident to put that like self-infusion of cash into the business? And like, or like, when do you have that confidence of like, it will pay off? Like, do you wait until, you know, you have that 
traction or I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a tough way of asking that question, but yeah, it's super hard. Like one do you, like, you know, because all these conversations about like, oh, you have to validate all of your assumptions and pre-sell and validate that there's a market there and then, and then validate growth metrics and all this stuff. And like, but at the end of the day, like there are still moments where you have to put up the money before you're going to see the return. And like, how do you kind of think about that? Right. Yeah. Well, for me, I didn't put up the money up front. I was two years in and it wasn't, I didn't put the money in after seeing the success. I put it in after like a year of kind of dismal results. And so what that came down to me was, you know, to double down or shut down and convert it was the decision. And uh, I just came up with a simple two question framework. And that was the first question was, do you still want this as much today as the day that you started? Because we've all had projects where we're like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I'm so excited. And then like 48 hours later, the motivation's gone. And you're like, yeah, you know, we'll work on something else. Um, and that's okay. Like if you're no longer interested, then just move on. But then uh, when I asked myself that question, I was like, yeah, I absolutely want to be running a SaaS company. And I want this desperately. So it's like, okay. Then the second question is, have you given this every possible chance to succeed? So I think you should go in with giving it a very modest amount of capital. You know, you should have those constraints. Hey, maybe you have $20,000 in savings and maybe initially you you give it 5,000 to get going and try to make that work. But when I asked like, okay, have I given this every chance to succeed? The answer was no. Like I was working on it part-time. Um, I'd put in $5,000 of my own money total. And I couldn't honestly say like, yep, I gave it my best shot and it didn't work out. And so I saw that disconnect between the effort that I had put in and how much I said I wanted it. And so to me, that $50,000 was, okay, this is truly giving it my best shot. And that happened to be all of our savings at the time. Um, if I had more money, it probably would have put in more. But that gave me the confidence that looking back, if it had failed, I would have just been able to say, yep, I gave it my best shot, didn't work out, and move on, rather than always asking, could it have worked? Yeah. And obviously, you know, every person's situation is different and you have to go with your own kind of comfort level on, on everything. But, you know, one thing I found it just as for me as a very risk averse, and I think actually most entrepreneurs are more risk averse than people think. Um, I've also found that just thinking through, all right, well, what's the worst case scenario? And there actually are very few things that you can't dig your way back out of. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you just go and find another way to earn some money. So long as, ah, there's so many founders that I talk to who don't live conservatively. I'm always like, ah, do you want those extra stuff that you're spending 500 bucks a month on? Or do you want a successful company? And I could rant about that for a long time. <laughs> so, you know, kind of getting back to costs, obviously revenue for ConvertKit has grown just, you know, substantially over the last couple of years. And how have you been able to keep the costs in check? Yeah. So first, um, we just told everyone from the beginning, Basically, when we decided to really focus on profitability, we were at that 120K MRR mark. I had that conversation with Mike McDermott and he was saying like, look, I think you can get profitable. You don't need to raise funding. You're growing at a good clip. So just stop spending more money. And so for five months, we did not spend any more money. We didn't hire anyone else really. I guess we, we hired one or two people. But the team grew in that time from like 14 to or 13 people to 16 or something like that. You know, So not a lot. And we just like money was not an option for how to solve the problem. So you had to do it a different way. And then we also made it clear that we weren't going to raise funding. So it was always like, well, if we need this, then we, you know, we might go raise some funding and just deciding, nope, not going to do it. It saved us a lot of effort because 
it came up in every conversation of like, oh shoot, we're so resource constrained. Should we raise funding? And so just making that decisively, it gave us one clear path out of there and that was to build up our savings. And then we put in a really clear goal and said, look, we want to have three months of expenses in the bank within six months. And we ended up hitting that. And we went from three, let's see, I think when we decided to do that, we had about 30,000 in cash in the bank, 25,000 that we built up from having a couple grand a month in uh, savings. And then at the end of the six months, we had a little over 400,000 in the bank and that felt so good. And we celebrated by going on a, a team retreat and meeting everyone in person, which was amazing and handed out profit sharing checks there. And, and that's the other thing that now embedded in our culture is this frugality because we actually have it written down and we have a set system of how we do profit sharing. And so 60% of all of the profit in the company gets distributed to the team. So actually at this point, we've distributed $540,000 in profit to the team. And so everyone's like, hey, did you leave that AWS instance running? Because that costs two grand and that's not cool. Um, you know, Or one of the guys on our customer support team was being asked at a conference, like when he bought his flights, they were doing like a little survey to try to better understand the people attending the conference. And afterwards, someone who read the survey sent an email back and was like, why did you buy your flights when he did? And he was like, oh, well, I was waiting for the price to go down because I knew it was super high and I knew it was going to drop a little bit, you know, based on the trends. And they were just like, why do you care? You paid with a company card. And he was like, um, it's my money too, you know? And that's the culture that we have throughout the whole company. And it really, really helps keep the cost down because everyone knows that, hey, that percentage of profits is going into the profit sharing pool. And I want my check to be $7,000, you know, every six months instead of 3,000 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So I guess with that frugality and just keeping an eye on team size overall, as you continue to grow and again, like email marketing tools, I mean, it, it is a super, super competitive market. Like what are the constraints there? Like are I guess during that period when you became profitable, when you put that savings away, like did you basically have to slow down the the engineering roadmap? Like did customer support suffer? Like how did you kind of solve those problems? Yeah, um, we probably slowed down the engineering roadmap. Uh, I'm trying to think how else. You know, once you take away certain options, so spending more money was not an option to solve our customer support queue problem. Hiring more people was not an option. And so then instead of complaining about how you can't, you can't do those things. Instead, we ended up with more constraints and we were able to solve it within those constraints. In hindsight, I'm always, you know, I'm shocked at how often people like reach for the hire more people or spend more money solutions. And if you just take those away, then there's usually a way around it. That said, I always worried about maybe I'm starving the company. Yes, we're growing at this amazing rate. Could we grow faster if we're spending every dollar or if I did go out and raise a couple million? And I'll never know. But I do know that we own the company. We don't have investors. We only answer to our team and our customers and I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, that's something that I think about a lot. Obviously in your situation, you're in this like fast growth mode where it would make sense to go ahead and spend money and you know take investment or do whatever. But I just feel like there a lot of that same mentality of slowing things down, working within those limitations. I think that that really applies even a lot more to a bootstrap startup in its first year. And I feel like that's not talked about enough because there, I feel like there are a lot of software startups bootstrapped, self-funded, and they feel this pressure to work on the same pace as a funded startup would. And yeah, you do kind of have to strike while the iron's hot and get that early traction. But in a lot of ways, what I've been thinking about in the past year, um, you know, as I'm launching this SaaS is like, 
I can go as slow as I need to at times. I don't have that pressure of having to go super fast all the time. And it's, it's frustrating, but it's, you know, it can also be an advantage. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's absolutely true because you just need to know exactly why you're building it and you know, who you're trying to serve and what your goals are. That said, I think that a lot of bootstrappers use bootstrapping as an excuse for laziness and they, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, because we don't have the money to hire a sales team, then we can only grow through content marketing or ads. Or if I had more money then I could buy more ads, but since I don't, like, we're just not going to do that. And it's like, I'm not really convinced how much you want this. You know, if you're not willing, like all of the bootstrappers, when I started doing direct sales, they're like, oh, but that doesn't scale. And all of the venture funded companies are like, oh, it's amazing. It scales perfectly. If it's, as it's working, you can spend more money on it. Perfect. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> like the bootstrappers won't even do the things that work wonderfully well at a small scale because they've already dismissed it because you know, what's the quote, quote, it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. And so I think that a lot of bootstrappers use that as an excuse. They're like, oh, I, I don't have the money, so I can't invest in this and that doesn't scale. And so I'm not going to do it. And uh, they miss out on a lot of opportunity because they're trying to build the whole company while they're doing 30 hours a week or something and have seven side projects going at once. Yeah. So, you know, we're jumping around here. And as we start to kind of wrap up, I did want to talk a bit about, you know, what marketing and sales looks like for ConvertKit today, you know, we're recording this in uh, early 2018. So you guys are pretty well established at this point. I'm sure still growing like crazy, but you know, you've been doing a lot of things, a lot of interesting things on the marketing front. Like, so now at this size and this market share and all that, like, what are you thinking about in terms of like your overall marketing strategy? Like what are the areas where you're spending a lot of time and resources? Yeah. So education is a huge thing for us you know, teaching people how to earn a living online. And so we do that through a couple different ways. And, and these end up being our main growth channels. Um, the first is we do webinars. So we have a really big affiliate program and uh, we have someone full-time on our team now uh, named Isa. And she jumps in and works with a partner like a Pat Flynn or, you know, whoever else and teaches a webinar on marketing automation or how to grow your list or email marketing for authors or whatever, you know, tailored to that exact audience. So you guys will go to these like pretty well-known influencers and kind of pitch their audience on doing a webinar. Yeah, exactly. And then they'll make a 30% recurring commission on anyone who signs up. So that's a part of it. We have a lot of big content plays. So we have this online magazine called Tradecraft. And instead of just putting out a weekly blog post, instead we do a monthly issue of Tradecraft on specific topics. So email deliverability, design for non-designers, any of these things. We try to put out the best guide online. Um, it's published as individual blog posts, but it's also available as this beautifully designed PDF. Yeah, I really liked what, you, what you've been doing with that. Looks awesome. I mean, it, it's really useful information for sure. Um, I mean, I'm curious about that strategy a, a bit. Like, I guess when it started and maybe when you think about it now, like, is that the, the sort of thing that you think about like a direct ROI or it's just something that like, you know, like you put it out there and like good things tend to happen. Like, how do you think about that as a strategy? Yeah, we definitely want it to drive direct ROI. I'm not convinced that it's doing it on the level that we want it to right now. Um, we have kind of this, like everyone has all these different tactics that work and we're always, we tend to do things the way we want to and then hope that it works, you know, rather than saying, Oh, some weird trick that someone came up with that works and like can we make it match our brand so we don't feel sleazy about it like we tend to stay pretty far away from that and so we thought okay what if we put out an online magazine of that quality like custom illustrations and all this stuff every single month 
could we do that? Could it work? And now we're getting a lot better at making it drive results. Um, and then another thing that we do is we do these big, these big master classes. So we did one launch an online business master class for total beginners, the product creation master class, and we're going to do one on marketing automation really soon, which are these you know much more focused classes that take people through through an entire process. So they have they're not just learning, but they have an actual result through the other side. So our last masterclass, we did the product creation masterclass in January and that had 10,000 people sign up for it. Nice. And, and these are like free resources, basically. Yeah. I think we're going to start charging for them, actually. Um, they're free now, but I think we might switch to charging for them, which will be super interesting because I come from you know a course and online training ebook world and I haven't done that in a long time. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens when we start selling them because like I realized, you know, we have an email list of 125,000 people. Uh, we've got 32 team members who can support all of this. And so it's like, oh, wow, we can actually make way better courses than everyone else. Uh, we have 5,000 affiliates. We pay out $150,000 a month through our affiliate program. It's like, hmm, what happens when we start selling info products? <laughs> like we're better positioned than a lot of the big names. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And then again, that goes back to focusing in on that niche or niche, the, the bloggers and like, you know, you could actually have training that really speaks to them. Yeah. And so for the, that absolute beginner, cause we're having a churn problem right at that absolute beginner level. And so we think that we might be having it backwards of selling them software when they really need training. And so we've been giving them the training, but then there's a chance that they're not taking it seriously and they're not committing to it because it's free. And so we're going to try selling it and then see it from there. Once we can educate them, then we can get them into using ConvertKit at the next level. So we'll see. Cool. Yeah. And I mean, the only other thing before we wrap, I I wanted to touch on the conferences that you've been putting on, like craft and commerce. So tell me about that. Like, how is that? How did you even put that together? And is that even like a, I don't know, like a marketing play or is it just, hey, we want to put on a conference? Most of our marketing and brand plays are because they're things that we want to do. Um, So (laughs) exactly how it came about was, we had talked about it for a little while, but we hadn't committed to it in any way. And then I did something that really pisses off my team. And that's where in my year in review blog post, in the like looking forward to the next year section, I like throw stuff out there. And one of them was host a conference. And they're like, we've talked about it, but like, did you just commit us to hosting a conference? And I was like, yeah, but we'll do it in October. That'll work. And then for various reasons, we moved it to June. So we started planning this in February and hosted the conference in June. And it was a it was an amazing success. We had Seth Godin out to keynote the event. Just a great speaker lineup: James Clear, Sean McCabe, so many great people. And uh, just really, really happy with how it came off. Uh, we definitely lost money on the event. Some of those speakers were not cheap to get in, but you know we're already in a great position for next year. Uh, the event's half sold out, and this time last year we hadn't even figured out like what city it was going to be in. So it's fun to see the momentum. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I've seen a few of these kind of company, I guess, company sponsored events, right? Pop up and it seems like a thing. Oh, it's not not necessarily a new thing, but it's been happening, I guess, a little bit more often now with, with SaaS products. Like, is this an event for ConvertKit users or potential ConvertKit users? Or is it supposed to, are you trying to appeal to non-ConvertKit users? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's an event for creators. So if you go to our homepage, there's a little plaque in the photo there and it's pretty small and it's just next to the laptop. And that's a plaque that I made for every person on the team. So every person who works at ConvertKit has that plaque sitting on their desk. 
And it just says, we exist to help creators earn a living. And that's the core mission. We happen to be doing that through software, but we don't have to, you know? And so now in addition to software, we do it through an event. We do it through all of our training. We do it through our webinars. And then like the conference is just an extension of that. We need to create that community. So there's only one session. No, I talked about ConvertKit and where we were going from the main stage for 20 minutes on kind of giving the state of ConvertKit and announcing all the new features. And then there was one workshop that was ConvertKit specific. And all the rest of the content was just, if you're a blogger, an author, a creator, photographer, podcaster, any of that, just like meeting great people, growing, learning, and tons of amazing stories. And that's the way we look at it. This next year is going to be pretty similar. We also throw in other totally random projects. So like in March, we're coming out with a Kickstarter campaign because we spent the last year shooting a documentary about how bloggers earn a living. And so we're coming, we have the documentary, a coffee table book that comes out of that. It's amazing photography. And, you know, those are our, our fun projects that people are like, uh, what does that have to do with email marketing software? And they're like, nothing. But it has everything to do with helping creators earn a living and telling their stories. And so we use our software profits to further that mission. And it's pretty fun. Very cool. Well, uh, this has been, you know, informative, inspiring as always. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan, for doing this. Very awesome. You can, of course, check out ConvertKit. I guess just on on a final note, like what are we looking forward to here in 2018? I mean, you mentioned the documentary, like anything else uh, that you're looking ahead to in the next couple months? Yeah, the the big things, uh, the documentary and which will come out in March and then uh, the conference at the end of June. If you're into video at all, uh, Casey Neistat is keynoting the conference. He's an amazing YouTuber. Uh, Pat Flynn is also keynoting. And then, you know, we've got a ton of stuff feature-wise, but uh, that's kind of the, the big focus. Very cool. So uh, yeah, thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Hey, before you go, have you checked out my YouTube channel yet? I've been posting short videos where I answer questions that come in from readers of my newsletter. You got a question that you want me to answer? It could be about business, entrepreneurship, productizing, life, whatever. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you recently and I'll add it to the queue. What's up? You're not on my newsletter yet? Well, get on it. Head over to my site, castjam.com. That's where you'll find it. Okay, until next time. See you.